take another Christian to court. Well, apparently they were doing so in Corinth, and Paul's response to that question was no. It's stupid. It's shameful. It's sinful. Let's take a closer look. We're in 1 Corinthians, beginning with chapter 6 this morning. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? If then you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? The first thing wrong with taking a brother to court is that it's stupid, it's ridiculous, it's absurd. Now those are my words, not Paul's. But Paul can hardly believe that a Christian would take a brother to a civil court. You know, even if there is an irreconcilable difference between brothers, the last place Paul expected Christians to go to have differences resolved was before pagan judges. Judges who were of no spiritual standing who didn't understand Christian relationships, nor our responsibilities to one another based on our relationship with God. Judges who, as Paul put it, are of no account in the church. Now, he's not saying here that we shouldn't respect the civil authorities, but that the wisdom they dispense is at best worldly. And that is, of course, true unless a judge happens to be a Christian and makes decisions based on God's revelation. Now, that may be possible today, but with all the laws and precedents and separation of church and state principles they have to follow, it doesn't happen very often. And it certainly wasn't possible in Corinth. So Paul fully expected Christians to take their problems to the saints, not the pagans. Jews would never do that. To bring a lawsuit before an idolater was to the Jews blasphemy against the law. And Paul expected Christians to likewise understand the difference between God's law and Roman law. Besides, Paul expected the body to be able to resolve its own differences. And his expectation was justified. After all, he tells us, the saints will one day judge the world. Now, Jesus told the apostles that they would sit on 12 thrones and judge 12 tribes. 
And in Revelation, we're told that those who overcome will sit down with Christ on His throne. But this is the only place where it's actually stated that we will judge the world. Now, we're not given the details. But Paul does make it clear that the saints will judge the world. And surely, if we're going to judge the world, we are competent to handle disputes between brothers. And even more than that, Paul says we're going to judge angels. Now, that really is a new one. You know, Paul told us, or Peter told us, that angels who sinned were being reserved for judgment, but he didn't tell us that we would share in their judgment. Paul says here that we will. When Christ comes back for us, we will share his throne. We'll share his glory. We will even sit with him in judgment over the world and over heavenly beings. And if we're going to sit with Christ in judgment over angels, Paul argues, surely we can judge the simple matters of this life. How stupid, how, how absurd to think that the saints who will one day judge the world and the angels should have to go before the pagan judges they will one day judge to have a dispute settled. A Christian going before a pagan judge to have a dispute settled is, as one commentator put it, like a mathematician asking a ninth grader to balance his checkbook. <laughs> Now, Merlin suggested they could probably do it, but uh, that was the illustration he used. I was going to change it and go third grade, but you get the point. You get the point. It's stupid. It's stupid when you understand what God is going to do through us. And not only is it stupid, it's shameful. Continuing on, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Now, in chapter 4, Paul said at that point in his letter, he didn't write to shame them. Now, he does. He said it's shameful that they take a brother to court. Shameful for several reasons. First, he says, it's shameful to think that there was not one person in the entire Corinthian body who was not wise enough to arbitrate a conflict in the church. No one respected enough that people in the church would go to them for counsel and guidance. You know, we are put into a body to minister 
to one another, to help one another, even to discipline one another. And when a problem or conflict arises in your life that you can't resolve, you should be able to turn to the church. You should seek out an elder or a minister or a teacher or anyone else whose maturity in Christ and judgment you respect. fact of the matter, however, is that even if we do respect someone and feel they could help us, we're often too embarrassed to go to them with our problems. We've gotten the idea that a person in church is the last person who should know we're having problems. You know, we don't want to look bad in the eyes of the church. We don't want to look like a failure. We want everyone to think that we are living an idyllic, perfect Christian life. This happens a lot. This happens a lot. That is certainly one of Satan's shrewdest moves because it destroys the life of the body. If we have to pretend everything is fine... And when it's not, sneak outside the church to find counsel and direction. Something is wrong. Desperately wrong. God put us into a family. So we'd have someone to go to. But the Corinthians were going outside the church. They were taking their problems to unbelievers to have them resolved. And Paul said, that is a shame. He also says going to unbelievers with our problems is defeat for us. By going outside the church, we're telling the world that while we claim to have the answer for the major problems of the world, we don't have the answer to simple conflicts that arise between Christians. And conflicts do arise between Christians if you've never experienced that. You know, it's a shame when we claim to have a message of reconciliation for the world, but can't reconcile our own differences. We fail as Christians when we have to resort to lawsuits to resolve our differences. And even if we can't get our brother to work with us to arrive at a mutually agreeable solution, we have failed if we take the matter to court. Because it's better for us to be wronged, to be defrauded, than it is for us to go to court. Didn't Jesus teach us on the Sermon on the Mount that if anyone wants to sue us and take our shirt, we are to let him have our coat also? That we're not to fight for our rights. A famous preacher used to tell of an incident that happened in church when he was eight years old. He says the brethren had gathered to discuss some kind of difficulty, and apparently someone felt the terrible injustice had been done to him. And finally he stood up and shook his fist and said, I don't care what the rest of you do. I want my rights. I just want my rights. And it was an old, half-dead Scottish brother sitting in the front row, and he cupped his hand behind his ear and asked, Hey, brother, what's that you say? The offended brother responded, I want my rights. That's all. The old man said, 
your rights, brother. Is that what you want? Your rights? Why, the Lord Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs. (laughs) And he got them. Harry Ironside, who, again, was only eight at the time, said, I'll always remember how that fellow stood transfixed for a while, then dropped his head and said, you're right, brother, you're right. Settle it any way you like. In a few moments, the whole matter was settled. When the reputation of the church and our Lord is at stake, why not be wrong? Why not even be defrauded? Is his name and perhaps even the soul of an observer of so little value that we would trade it for a financial settlement? No matter how much it might be. Paul says it's a shameful thing to think that Christians would do that. Would fight among themselves for their rights. Whatever happened to the kind of relationship that existed in the church as reported in Acts 4, 32-33? And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but that all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. They weren't like children fighting over a toy, crying, mine. Paul then mentions one more reason. Taking a brother to court can be shameful. He says in verse 8, You yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Some were apparently trying to get rich through lawsuits. And they were using the law to get ahead. They had discovered that they could get a really good settlement from the court if they suffered whiplash after a chariot crash. Or emotional damage after a traumatic experience. And even if they weren't all trying to get rich, at least they wanted to get even. As one commentator put it, getting even by... Foul means are fair should never be a part of a Christian's character. What was it Jesus said about turning the other cheek? So yes, it's shameful for a Christian to take his brother to court. And even more than that, Paul indicates it's sinful. Verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 
Now, we often use these verses to focus on the sinful behaviors listed here and make the point that not only are they identified as being sinful, they are all behaviors that can be given up. And that includes the one that we're constantly being told today cannot be changed, and obviously that's homosexuality. And as an aside, I should note that the word translated effeminate is not referring to innate personal characteristics, but to sexual perversion. All the behaviors listed are sinful, and unless given up, exclude the practitioner from the kingdom of God. And when Paul says, and such were some of you, he makes it clear that the Corinthian believers had given them up. Or at least should have. You know, Paul's catalog of sins here wasn't given to address homosexuality. It was given to address the fact that some in the church hadn't given up sinful behavior. That they should have given up. He didn't change topics when going from verse 8 to verse 9. In verse 8, he said they had wronged their brethren. And in verse 9, he reminds them that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Both words, wrong and unrighteous, come from the same root word in Greek. Paul is here making them face up to the fact that wronging and defrauding, though perhaps within the law, is sinful. And in the midst of his catalog of sins, Paul includes covetous, thieves, and swindlers. The implication, I think, is obvious. The primary reason the Corinthians were taking one another to court was that they were covetous. They were greedy. They were trying to gain at their brother's expense. They were trying to steal and swindle within the law. And Paul reminds them that such behavior is sinful. And even if they weren't motivated by greed or trying to make financial gain through such action, taking a brother to court at least indicated an unforgiving spirit and most likely a bitter spirit that wanted to get even, and that too is sinful. In Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, we read, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So there's no way around it. Taking a brother to court is sinful. Now, there may be times when it's appropriate to take someone to court, especially if by doing so you're trying to protect others. But it's never right to take a fellow believer to court. It may be the natural recourse for the man in the world, but we're different. 
We're different. We've been changed. We're no longer in the world. We're no longer unrepentant fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, perverts, homosexuals, thieves, covetors, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers who will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've been washed, cleansed in the watery grave of baptism. We've been sanctified, set apart from the world, and now belong to God. We've been justified. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been covered with the blood of Christ. Therefore, we cannot go back to sinful practices or harbor sinful attitudes. We can no longer live for self, but are to live for Christ and for the benefit of our brethren in Christ. And we surely don't do that by taking a brother to court. Now I trust everyone here realizes that I preach straight through Bible books. I don't pick out a passage to preach because there's a problem. Okay? I'm not aware of any problems that this addresses. Okay? I want to make that clear. But I think it's very important that we understand these principles before we're faced with the matter. The Scriptures were given for edification to teach us, to build us, to prepare us to be effective witnesses in the world. And it's important that we deal with all these matters, even the ones that aren't currently facing us. We've got to be prepared. Because this is not the kind of thing you hear in the world today. And it's very common for people within the context of a church to sue one another. And to even sue the church. I remember, I remember when I was just a teenager hearing about a church in Springfield that someone had tripped on a, a mat in the church and sued the church for it. I was dumbfounded. How could they do that? Sometimes we just do what the world does without thinking about it. But we need to think about it before facing the situation. Now, if this seems unreasonable, too much to expect that Christians give up their legal right to sue one another, I doubt that you've really come to grips with what Christ gave up for you on the cross. The old Scottish man had it right. He didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs, and he got them. He's already answered. Are you willing to get your wrongs for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be wronged? Are you willing to be defrauded? Christ was. If we're going to be what he's called us to be, we've got to stop and think. We can't let the world, as J.B. Phillips says, squeeze us into its mold, and it's so easy for that to happen. And we can always find some, I've been not used quotation marks, some disobedient Christian who does that. And we can justify our behavior saying, well, if it's okay for him, it must be okay for me. No, it's not. 
Paul is confronting the church in Corinth. This sin in the church. We've already seen some of it kind of horrified us and even horrified the Greeks, the Gentiles. But what's horrifying him here is the church had greedy people, covetous people, who were willing to rob and steal legally from their brothers and sisters. And that horrified him. That shamed him to the church. I pray we take seriously what we read in Scripture. I pray that you study it and say, Lord, what does that say to me? You know, we sing, I surrender all, a lot. And we kind of laugh about it because obviously it's my favorite hymn to close with. But you know, every time we sing that, we ought to stop and think, is there something in my life that I haven't surrendered to Him? And if there is, we've got to deal with it. Before we face a confrontation with it. Now's the time to surrender our hearts. And to commit ourselves to a life that is not stupid or shameful or sinful. But a life that honors the one we claim as our Lord and Savior. I just pray we think together. And we do what's right. Let's stand.